0: Hey everybody, I keep telling my kids to be quiet so I can record this friggin' intro. (laughs) And uh, it's not working. (laughs) Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast slash my annoying kids. And welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your favorite creatively conscious mortality podcast. Even if you're listening only for the first time, it's your favorite or it's your like top option because I know you don't have it already. I know that it doesn't exist. I know that there's other podcasts about death, dying and grief, but this is a creatively conscious mortality podcast very specifically. And this episode's guest helps make that clear once again. Love having authors on the show. Wonderful writers, and Barbara Becker is no exception. So I'm your host, Ned Buskirk. Glad to be here in your ear. Thanks for having me. Let's just get to this real quick. I want to say one thing that's one of many reasons why I'm so glad I got to talk to Barbara Becker and read Barbara Becker's book. What I want to say is, Barbara Becker's book, and I told her this, Feels like a memorial, uh, a graveyard of sorts, um, an acknowledgement of lineage of loss, lineage of ancestors, uh, the ancestry of our dead, but also the ancestry of those living that offer us the deepening understanding of what it means to be alive through their own struggles and their own losses and their their grief and their living and dying, and. All the chapters, actually almost all the chapters are named after who those people are, who those human beings are in Barbara's life. And so it's something I feel about some of the spaces we facilitate. Reading a book like this is like getting the offering of Barbara's life and the lives and deaths of her life to inform my own experience of being alive. We don't have to have gone through all the things when we go and listen to one another, share our deep heartbreak and grief. When we sit with someone who's lost someone, the most important person in their life, we don't need to be there only if we've also lost someone. We actually get to be there to support them by not knowing, by showing up with the questions, by being willing to show up knowing we can't fix it. And by the way, by doing that, our own life, I think, can find more meaning and understanding and belonging maybe or enlivening our lives. When I leave a cancer patient workshop or I'm in San Quentin or I'm in a grief space, I leave with a different kind of appreciation for that I'm alive and how I'm alive. And this book is that kind of experience incarnate. And so that's what I want to tell you. Before you listen to this conversation and I'm going to leave it at that. Cause I want you just to get to it. And when you're done listening to this episode, get Barbara Becker's book, Heartwood. Barbara Becker is the author of Heartwood, the art of living with the end in mind, winner of the 2022 gold Nautilus award. She has dedicated more than 25 years to partnering with human rights advocates around the world in pursuit of peace and interreligious understanding. She has worked with the United Nations Human Rights First, the Miss Foundation for Women, and the Grameen Bank of Bangladesh, and has participated in a delegation of Zen peacemakers and Lakota elders in the Black Hills of South Dakota. She is an ordained interfaith minister who bridges the sacred and the secular and has sat with hundreds of people at the end of their lives. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Barbara Becker. Mm -hmm.
1: When I first started writing this book, I was told that no one will ever read a book of essays. And I wanted to tell the stories about about 20 or 25 people and my interactions with them. So I knew that I was going to have to find something like important, a way of tying it all together. Mm. And, you know, it just so happened that at some point in the middle of all of these losses of my life, my husband and I were out walking in an old growth forest, and we learned that inside the pillar of every tree is the hard, durable core, and it's called heartwood. Mm-hmm. Now, it supports the growth rings that grow around it, but what's so surprising is that heartwood is dead you know, it's inert. Mm. It just doesn't participate in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree anymore. But for those growth rings to grow, it needs that stable inner core. And I loved that because Mm. I think of people like my mom as being in my heartwood now And I think about people like my kids who are still very much alive being the growth rings around which... You know, we grow around my mom and around everyone who is part of my Heartwood. Mm. So I was able to call the book Heartwood and to uh, flow these other wonderful beings into that format.
0: I'm so glad that you explained that just just now. Because, I mean, I, th- I, I think I got it from the book, but I by the end of the book, I miss it. Almost. And so it's so good to be reminded and brought back to that. And for some reason, I'm just feeling like I, I'm a little bit in better relationship to my own dying in in this framing, because it's it's so it's so nice to hear the eventuality that I am a part of some core important layer. And I think our culture is so inclined to not let us be placed there or to brush us under the table, um, when we're gone. And like I shared with you, my compulsion to have the open mic was one I think of, well, I want to bring them into the living conversation. You know, I want to be in die. I want, not only that, I want to be in conversation with them still, which I think your book is a version of too. It's, it's you in conversation with all, all your dead.
1: Yes. I love that you said that because I think, There are so many cultures that do death right Mm -hmm. in that regard. I mean, we have the Day of the Dead from Mexico and the Mexican diaspora, where we bring the dead forward and, you know, visit graveyards and have the food that they would have loved to have eaten and the drinks and the music. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a way of keeping these memories alive. And um, you know, at one point, when I was volunteering on the hospice floor at Bellevue, which is our big public hospital in New York City, I had a patient who was Maori, which is indigenous to New Zealand. She was a young woman, and she had come to New York City on an art fellowship, and she learned she was terminally ill, and she was alone. Mm. And I was sitting with her at the bedside and she said, you know, Barbara, I'm really not alone. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, you know, in our tradition, our ancestors, like those who have come before, are Mm -hmm. gathering slowly around my bedside and when the time is right, they'll reach out their hands and welcome me to the other side. Yeah, <laughs> And I love that. We yeah. just don't talk that way in our culture. No. And Heartwood was a way of letting me tell the story of loss and of continued love mm-hmm. at the same time.
0: And suddenly it's dawning on me the amount of work that you've done with the dying. There had to be very obvious people in your life that needed to be in this book. And I wonder if you, you have this moment of, well, I need to list all my dead and say like, who, who needs to be in this party? (laughs) You know, like who (laughs) needs to be in this book? I imagine there's a long list that does, you know, the book does not cover, especially considering your work in hospice.
1: You know, it's so true. And the thing about it is you publish a book and it has a specific date and then your life continues on mm. and, you know, more people yeah. come in as growth rings, but you also lose more people who were very much alive during that time. And they, um, they really just, it, it's just an ever ending, never ending <laughs> yeah. flow yeah. of, um, of just Continuity of mm-hmm. ups and downs and ridges and valleys, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I very much love what the Taoists have to say. They say that this is a world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, mm-hmm. and it's really a matter of dancing between the two, finding equanimity when we can, but really being with the highs and the lows.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, that's where aliveness is, I feel like, And, and when we choose, especially this work, you know, I feel from your book some version of what I describe, which is the urgency, you know, the dead kind of entering you or becoming part of you and helping you focus on where you need to show up in life almost. and And I think I imagine the hospice work is definitely a version of that. But before I kind of connect, I, I kind of want to connect my story to that because it is one of the first things I did after my mother-in-law died. My mom did not have hospice and you know I'd come home for Thanksgiving and she just got really sick but I, but you know it'd been 13 years of that so my sister and I kind of thought and my mom maybe even thought she'll get better but it went very fast and she died the day after Thanksgiving and we just were young and didn't even know about hospice and just couldn't have known to ask for help you know until it was so obvious we couldn't even hardly get her to the bathroom and that's when we called the hospital. But in contrast, my mother-in-law's death, hospice was hugely significant. And I credit my my father-in-law for that, of course. Um, he made sure to have that holding. And it just changed my relationship to what's possible at the end of life. She died at home. And all of us were by her, you know, and by her bedside. I didn't mean it wasn't hard and and really 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 like with that it wasn't without its bad moments, but that's dying. And anyway, I left that thinking I'm not going back to school to like become a nurse or a doctor, but I want to I want to see about this hospice option and I started doing hospice volunteering and it felt like what I'm wondering what it was for you and that story of getting into that work. Um, it felt uh, urgent, you know. It was like I. There's no question that this is what I need. There's no question that I need to be at the dying's bedsides. Like I need to be with the dying. I want to be in conversation with them. I want to learn, and that's really where that the beginning of I would say my legitimizing without becoming a mental health professional or or a medical professional me figuring out like this is my entry point to being in this conversation of death and dying in a way that like can build experience and bring something back to the people that come to our events and come to our workshops that's like the earliest version of it and so I I'm, I wanna, I want to I want to hear a little bit about that part of Your life, getting to the hospice work and what that's been. And also acknowledge, like I meant to before I shared all this hospice stuff, that I think choosing a path like this, opening yourself to love and receive life means that you'll have heartbreak and loss. And that's being most alive to me. And I heard recently... That you know, people are like, I just wish I didn't have all these highs and lows. I wish I was just sort of right in the middle and more balanced right there. And the response to that is, well, that's the flat line of your heart monitor. <laughs> you know, when you're in the hospital, that's like you're dead. You know, part of life is really, like you said, ten thousand joys, ten thousand sorrows, like, and the dance in between.
1: Oh, my goodness. That is one of the truest things that there is. I mean, Mm -hmm. our society is rife with toxic positivity, as it's called. You know, this idea that we should be young and healthy and not have a strand of gray in our hair. And, you know, the vacations should be marvelous and our jobs should be lucrative. And it goes on and on and on. And we deny the difficult things and we think that people don't want to hear them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's so interesting to me, like the conversation about death. I mean, people said to me when when uh, they asked, what are you writing a book about? And I said, well, it's really about death. And they said, oh, boy, nobody's going to want to read that. Nobody's going to want to talk about that. <sighs> but I'm sure as you find in your work that once you open the door, like it's just the floodgate opens in a sense and people can't stop talking because we've denied ourselves for so long, these beautiful and vulnerable conversations about what's tough. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that's where we have so much connection to one another. And the love starts pouring out when you uh, have that kind of safe space, safe, Mm -hmm. brave space to share stories
0: yeah yeah i I would say most of what I describe to you, most of what we do is really grounded in <clears throat> the foundation of it is what you just described, you know, and i would credit I would credit like you right an incredibly wonderful writer, like l- l- so love your the voice of your writing of your words on the page, the beautiful book, and part of the success of it being in the world isn't as much about that as it is about people needing it, the book. And I feel that way about that first open mic, you know, after my mother-in-law died, me getting clear on, oh, this is what this space is for. Our success and growth from there is as much, if not more a credit due to people saying, yeah, I need that. Like people saying, literally saying often, where has this been? Like, this is what I've been looking for.
1: Yeah. You know, um, you asked me about how I got involved in hospice work.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And when my earliest childhood friend, Marissa, was just 30 years old, she was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And it was like the most remarkable time in the sense that Marissa knew she was dying, and she herself lived her life in the most beautiful way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what had happened was she dropped her future story. She knew she wasn't going to live forever. So Mm -hmm. she really um, had a presence unlike anybody else I had ever encountered in my life. Uh, She went ahead and she married her college sweetheart And she went to Italy between chemo sessions and um, she just spent quality time with people and and with her cats, Mm -hmm. you know. And in the meantime, I was a total wreck, Ned. I was just like (laughs) uh, waking up at three every Mm -hmm. morning, not being able to go back to bed crying hysterically, just breaking out in a cold sweat over the fact that I would lose Marissa. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking my gosh, my parents, they're getting older too, and I'm going to lose them. And then it mm. extended to my husband and, yeah. you know, my own yes, mortality. I do like, know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was a mess.
0: Uh uh-huh. But real <laughs> quick interjection is like, of course, like that's part of the, the, like what we get from dying in life, right? The things we get from, um, our dead or death and dying is this, this, uh, connection through line right to us right through all the things we love and already at the beginning as hard as that was that was your it sounds like what what it was with my mom right one of the first major losses that had you suddenly in that work like oh this is about everything getting lost including yes
1: Mm. oh i was so lost oh my gosh and I did like what I usually do being such a nerd <laughs> <laughs> that I am. You know, I went to the library mm. and I took out every book on spirituality and religion mm. and philosophy and just beautiful works of literature. And I discovered that, you know, wise people, sages and saints throughout time, I mean, from the Buddha to the prophet Muhammad to the stoic philosophers like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, and even to our homegrown American sage, Henry David Thoreau, mm-hmm. like they all advised us that if we want to live fully, we need to live with the end in mind. Mm-hmm which is such a paradigm shift. I mean, it it was kind of shocking to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was even reading um, Steve Jobs at the time was um, giving a commencement speech and he was dying um, of cancer at that time. And he said that death is the single most uh, important invention of life. He said, you know, because it is life's change agent. Mm-hmm. And it was like a moment of, wow, really? We, we can actually admit that this is you know, like that. We are going to die as you so perfectly yeah. say, mm-hmm. um, you know, Marissa, um, had great hospice care and I was able to observe some of that at the end of her life. That's the and first time. Yeah, Where you kind of
0: saw that that option, that resource. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I can't go on philosophizing. Like just like you, I I thought yeah. I should get involved in this. Yeah. I want to get involved in this, and all along I knew. I was going to be learning more than I was giving, yeah. you know? Yes. And yes. I just felt like this enormous welling up of gratitude for all of these incredible people that I've had the opportunity to meet over the years doing this work. Mm.
0: Did you go right away after that? I'm trying to remember if the book explains that moment of starting hospice training or what when did that begin? Like how did you know like I'm seeking this out and here's where I'm going to do it. And what's that story?
1: Well, I, um, had developed an interest in meditation Mm -hmm. and, uh, that came about through a period in my life where I had two miscarriages Mm -hmm. and it was another time where I felt like I, I just the, the tumultuousness of the reality of life and death was more than I had tools to handle. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to try meditation. And oh, my gosh, um, you know, I, I really think very fondly of people who are trying to meditate for the first time and (laughs) with such compassion because (laughs)
2: it's so
0: hard. It is so hard. You
1: sit down and your thoughts are dragging you left and right. It's like getting beat up on the shore, you know, (laughs) Um, but I had some really good meditation teachers and they taught me that meditation wasn't really about controlling my thoughts, but about noticing them, Mm -hmm. like just being aware of what was happening. And the trick was without judgment. Mm -hmm. Like, so not saying it should be this way, or it should be that way, but just like letting it ride and really becoming a student of our hearts and our minds. So I, when I decided to go get some training in hospice care, It seemed only natural to go to these two Zen monks in New York City who have um, an organization that works with people who are at the end of their lives. Mm. And um, I'm so grateful for the training I had with them. But the best part of the training was that. Um, we would sit together, we would meditate together, but then we would go actually to our assignment on a hospice floor somewhere with, with real people, real people who were dying and then come back and process it together. Wait, so
0: wait, like you went to this organiz you, you went to these monks because you wanted to learn meditation. Yeah. And did it, was it incidental that the dying, being with the dying was folded into that program? Was it a surprise? Was it part of what drew you there?
1: It was definitely what drew me okay, there. So you
0: knew it was like, this is meditation combined with being with the dying.
1: Yes wow. and because they're Zen there are these great like stories in Zen about you know becoming enlightened and then returning to the marketplace which mm. means like coming back and mm. giving back in our day-to-day lives. So I was so attracted to what they were doing.
0: Oh, I love that he, phrase returning to the marketplace.
1: Yeah. Is
0: that something that they would frame it as or
1: Yes, you know Totally coincidentally to my learning about Heartwood, Mm. uh, I found out that there is a Buddhist sutra called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Heartwood. I had no idea. But what it is, is that, you know, there's this image of a, a woodworker and he thinks he's like, you know, all enlightened and he's trying to find some good wood to work with. And, um, he, he keeps going back to this tree and he's looking at the branches and the twigs and the leaves and <laughs> the outer bark and the inner bark. And he thinks that he's like found enlightenment, mm-hmm. you know, because he's achieved some sense of virtue or concentration or some kind of knowledge. And he's getting a little cocky about it, right? Yeah. So um, the, the invitation is to not stop there to kind of take what you've learned and to keep going and mm-hmm. to find the heartwood or to find the marketplace, mm-hmm. you know, the place where the rubber really meets the road I of see. life.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what meditation practice is I all see. about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> I was thinking like in some way I mixed it up as uh, the the marketplace is like the going deeper. Yeah, Okay.
1: it's like, um, you know, that really great book by Jack Kornfield, like after the ecstasy, the laundry, you know, that's like the best book title, because that's That's what has to happen. We have to take the skills that we've gained Mm -hmm. and any insight and wisdom that we might have a tiny glimpse of and bring it back and Mm -hmm. make sure that it's relevant to our day to day lives.
3: everybody. Podcast producer Nick Jaina here. Ned is not here. He's eating a sandwich. Um, (laughs) I'm just here to remind you of the ways that you can support this podcast. You can rate it on iTunes or Spotify. I think Spotify has a way to rate podcasts now. You can um, rate it on a chalkboard that you find somewhere or you can tell your mailman or your doctor about it. You can also be a Patreon patron by going to patreon.com and supporting us there. You might notice that this spot doesn't have a lot of advertisements for products like other podcasts. Why is that? You might ask. Well, there's a good reason for that, but I can't get into it right now. For the meantime, you can just tell people about this show in all the ways that you know how and keep listening. Thanks, everyone.
1: Yeah, it's like um, learning to be a solid boulder in a Rushing mountain stream. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter how much snowfall, what runoff is coming down. Like the ideal is to be that non anxious rock. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you that I fall short of that all the time. (laughs) Sure. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. It would be such a lie to pretend that I figured out, you know, the secrets to life and death. Sure.
0: I get it. But these
1: metaphors are Mm -hmm. are helpful to me. I mean, the metaphors of nature, like that boulder, the heartwood. You know the ebb and flow of the tide, the waxing and waning of the moon. You know the the change of the seasons. Mm-hmm. There's so much that we can learn from nature about our own lives.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate the honesty about your <laughs> shortcomings um, or your moments, uh, but I want to connect that to another part of your book that was really good for me and I wonder if you could share share some thoughts on this which I'll speak from from very recent experience this going into San Quentin as an example <clears throat> I'm so honored and and really feel a stretch though there like I'm so grateful and and want to be there and it's a pretty significant place of, of me really stretching. I'm not saying capacity. I don't mean that, but I, but I do think of it in terms of how we've talking about being with the hard things. And there's times where I'm inclined when I'm doing some of this facilitation to think there's more to say, or think that I have some kind of like bag of gifts, you know, and, and, and how do you take those gifts and give them to anybody but through words. And then the risk is there's too much of that. There's me trying to think I do have some kind of knowledge or the right sentence to add to a moment that's going to offer whatever medicine is needed. And I don't mean that those moments can't happen, but, I, but I'm but i sometimes in the struggle. And the book helps me, this part in the book, where you talk about your hospice work, is um, that piece, I think, from the monks maybe, where they say, the dumber you are, the dumber you are in the work, the better. And I, when I read that part, uh, of the book, I was relieved and in a way that I've needed more reminders of it's okay to, like you encourage everyone in these spaces to pay attention to, um, sort of, in spite of or or in disregard of your limits and your strength to really like be in the moment so you can just be watching and paying attention for what happens and so then create what happens with that kind of attentiveness um, but the beginner's mind piece feels like I need to keep kind of kicking myself back into that perspective. And I'm wondering, how does how do you relate to that in a way that connects to what you just described? Even after all you've done, all the training, right, you just all the hospice training, the disaster chaplain work. There's still I wonder, is this element of, OK, good. You learned all that stuff and you've done a whole bunch of it. How do you keep staying connected to, there's some version of beginner's mind going here, um, or, or do you still?
1: So one of the Zen monks said to me at one point, when I was really feeling like there were answers to how to be with the dying, you know, I had to like learn every religious and spiritual tradition. I had to have all these tools at my disposal because somebody might ask me the big question about our existence and, you know, and, and I wouldn't have the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, you know, Barbara, you really do think you need to have all of these answers mm. to the existential questions. But if you go into the room of a hospice patient or anyone who's struggling And they're watching Jeopardy. Your job is to just pull up a chair and watch Jeopardy together (laughs) and just keep your mouth Mm -hmm. shut. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I found that so helpful that just it applies to everything in life. You know, I have these two sons who are now young adults and you know, like they're not watching Jeopardy, but, you know, I don't know, they're, they're playing something on their, on their phones and it's really yep. like, show me what that is. Like, yes. why do you like oh, that? Right. You know, like, yep. what, just tell me about your life, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, the monks also said like, you know, you might have a patient who wants to tell you all about baseball and you mm-hmm. know nothing about baseball, say. So again, you just say like, tell me about the Mets. Why do you love the Mets? Mm -hmm. You know, and you might end up hearing this incredible story about how somebody used to go to the ballpark with their dad and it'll unfold into one of the most beautiful stories Mm -hmm. of their family relationship. Mm -hmm. And you think you were talking about baseball, (laughs) but you really weren't at all.
0: Yes. I definitely relate to that with the volunteering, um, the the times I would go and watch these old movies or like a horse race or the the life review, you know, um mm-hmm. kinds of conversations and listening. I think I went into that work thinking I was gonna be somehow offering something. And, and not that I didn't, but there's so much of just being with people and knowing like it's so it's just that simple. And I definitely relate to connecting to my kids this idea that my son, you know, he's 11 and inclined towards video games and we try to keep it pretty balanced, but the risk is that I'm resistant to the video games. Okay. You can go play the video games. Uh, here's your time to go do that. And lately just wanting to sit next to him and, and play with him. And he wants to do that. He wants to share it with me. Like that's like the best version of of life for him as far as uh, in relationship with me, right? Is that yeah. I'm like, yes, to this thing that you so love instead of, okay, fine, you can go do that. Go in your room for two hours, you know? Oh, instead, right, of just or like, don't I do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to sit with you. I want to tell me how the game works. Let me give it a try. We did that uh, just a couple nights ago and it was like, oh, I, I need to do this more often. I need to make this kind of time with him. But yes, you're right. The ways these this paying attention, um, when being with others, especially uh, how much it shows up in the rest of life. I love that.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, again, I'm so curious, like what does your 11-year-old think about what you do?
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Great question. I am definitely going to toss this one back at you in a second, but let me see if I can answer that. We're pretty communicative. So I, I think Without oversharing um, with him and my daughters, eight, we do. I do make time to talk to them about like the workshops with the cancer patients and going into prison, and um, I, I kind of have a sense that they're, they're still at an age where if I talk about going into San Quentin to do suicide prevention work with the community in there he, he, let's stay with my son. It's sort of, it's sort of still like fascinating almost to the point of he he'll be inclined not to ask more questions and want to know more about the conversations I have or what exactly I'm doing, but maybe he'll just want to make a joke that he wants to go tell his, his friends at school that I went to prison today. Um, like I've I've been put away. Um,
2: he's
1: hilarious. He is hilarious. Uh,
0: I, but I sense there's a real, honestly, Barbara, I, I do sense without a lot of talk between us about all that stuff and me, I'm not like trying to drag them through it. Like here, we need to talk about why this matters or why it matters to me. I think there's a real knowing of how much it is and how maybe important it is to be in these kinds of relationships with the world and community like I really sense they know how much it matters, um, not just for me, but, but for maybe even them eventually. I don't know. I'm so curious to see the impact it may have on them as they get older, like if it will maybe somehow connect to their choices about how volunteering or, or work they may want to do. Um, they're so young still. It's, It's, there's still some kind of gap because like I said, I, they know what I do, but I don't, they're not asking a lot of questions and I'm not making them listen to me, you know, talk about it a lot either. Do you feel like at at that age, like eight through 11, your sons were asking a lot about your work? Were you talking a lot about it? Like how, how, how was it for you?
1: Um, You know, I was actually eight years old when I was first introduced to death. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had just learned that my dad had been married to somebody before he was married to my mom. Right,
2: right. Maureen. And
1: Maureen, yeah. And I had discovered her presence by kind of snooping around one day in my dad's wallet. Yeah. And I noticed a photograph of a woman tucked behind the picture of my mom. And I was like, what is going on here? Yeah. And, you know, I got caught in the act of, of looking through his stuff and my mom had come into the room and I was like, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. And, um, she told me that my dad had been married and that Maureen had died in an accident. Um, just shortly after they had been married. Mm. And I think what my parents did really well was to do what you just implied, to follow my questions. Mm -hmm. So that day it was enough to know that he had been married before and that she had died. That's right. And then it was months and months later where I was like, Okay, how did she die?
0: But still she died in a boat. Going into nine where you were starting to wanna know more. Yes, yes.
1: And they wouldn't answer anything unless I asked. And it was so great. It was really instructive for me, um, you know, as I was raising my own kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the real test was when my mom was dying. And we uh, told our sons that they could come and be with her and that it would Mm -hmm. probably be days, if not hours before she died. Mm -hmm. And they both thought about it long and hard. They had just seen her at Thanksgiving. And this was just a few days later. And they decided that they wanted to be there. And when they came to the room where my mom was staying in her home, like we gathered around her hospital bed, I think they thought, okay, that might've been a mistake. She Mm -hmm. looks terrible. She can't Recognize us—the—the the smells, the, the just everything about the room just was not what they had thought. So the youngest one left, yeah, and um, you know we gave him space, we gave him time to decide if he wanted to go back. Yeah, and he did. Yeah, but he had to do it again, like you know, a mm-hmm. few hours later, mm-hmm. just going outside and playing basketball in the yard for a little while and, you know, getting on that video game and eventually Mm -hmm. he wanted to be with Nana. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something about letting young people actually letting everyone (laughs)
2: lead
1: (laughs) with, with their questions in their own time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that. I was like, gosh, I feel like I should have answered that question about my own kids with a little more like they're very clear. Here's all the ways. And, and you just helped me get to really what the answer is that I it's, I don't really, I'll say I had a cancer patient workshop, you know, and I, they know enough cause they know grandma and Grammy died, you know, from cancer. And so it's, 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 it's an, it's, they know enough. I and I trust this that if they want to know more, they'll ask more. And sometimes they do. Um, and I'm and I'm down, but I don't, like I said, I don't drag them through it. I appreciate you helping me really like get clear on that's that's the relationship between me, them, and and this work. Um, but but I guess that that little piece is they're just I think I I, I sense they know my heart in these meaningful spaces and I'm proud of that, you know, and I don't mean to say that anybody that has a job that isn't in those contexts isn't getting some version of that too. You know this is no commentary on on any other line of work, but I, I can sense th- what I described to you about leaving that toy job and the sales was a way of saying, Where am I in the world and what is my work that I am passionate about, that I can care about deeply and and is affecting and deepening my experience of being alive. Like that's what I wanted. I could have never dreamed that I would be doing all the things I described to you with our organization, but I do sense they have a relationship to what's possible in knowing what I do. And it may be at early stages of that, but it matters a lot to me that that is a part of, of, of our relationship and their understanding. And I imagine you must have that, like some version of that with your boys.
1: I do. I really feel like they um, need to develop over time a vision for the world that they want to see happen, yeah. you know, and it's not just about the stuff or, um, you know, definitely. or the titles or all those things that they'll naturally be attracted to, especially so, when they're young and they've just graduated from college, it's almost like a rite of passage. We sort of have to, you know, go that route and, and strive and achieve for a while before we have the opportunity to have our ego, Mm -hmm. um, unpeeled layer by layer.
2: Um,
1: but you can't unpeel it if it, you know, if you haven't built it up. So I think it's natural in some ways to just, Go for mm-hmm. go for the gusto and everything our society has to offer, and then to see if that's actually what you want.
0: Yeah, the the risk is you know, and for me, you know, feeling that at least being aware and and never feeling, hopefully, like I'm demanding they're on some path that somehow relates to mine, and and really, really trusting like what you just described. That unfolding, however impactful it might be to have the influence of of what I do in the world and and the things I care about, um, knowing they have they have to have their own version of it, and and then get to their own rites of passage. That I that I I really feel like I had to go through. Um, and my mom's death probably was the 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 big one, really, that started making things clear about how I wanted to be in the world. And I know they'll have theirs, you know, whenever they, they do. But also uh, there is an element of wanting to offer a chance for those. And I think about even the simple act of letting your boys be with your mom as a version of that. And I think in our culture, we do a whole lot of not making those moments because we're worried it's too much. We're worried it's going to damage or ruin, you know, Um, instead of trusting like, they'll know and letting them have that choice and giving them the option, not protecting them from it, and knowing like even that moment was a a, a maybe earlier a, a rite of passage in a way for them.
1: Yeah, you know, this funny thing happened in my childhood home, which I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dad was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. And we had a real skeleton in the closet, (laughs) like a literal skeleton in the closet. (laughs) Um, We called him Felix. That's right. And Felix was actually my grandfather's like medical school anatomy tool. Like Mm -hmm. it's how he learned everything about the human body. And back in the early 1900s, when he graduated from medical school, the students weren't expected to return the skeleton. So it came into our family. And when my grandfather retired, he gave Felix to my dad and Felix's skull sat on my dad's desk in his study. And I feel like... My brothers and I, from the youngest age, were like, you know, like little Hamlets, like mm-hmm. staring into Felix's <laughs> eye sockets, like yeah. asking to be or not to be. You
2: mm-hmm. know? Yeah.
1: And I do feel like we rise to the occasion of what's before us as long as people don't make it out to be so like scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have in this society, this image of death with the hood and the scythe and that bony finger pointing at us, like beckoning us mm-hmm. over to the dark side, you know? Yep. And I think because of my dad's first wife's presence in our house, and in some ways because of Felix, I, I view death just as a gentler being, Mm -hmm. um, like almost like a mother in some ways, like someone who I could sit on the lap of and, and just, I don't know, like learn and accept rather than being absolutely horrified at every turn. So I'm really grateful for That sort of inadvertent education I got by living in this family.
0: The heartwood of Felix.
1: (laughs) Yes, Felix absolutely is (laughs) in my heartwood.
0: Totally. Barbara Becker for sharing her book and for being on the show It was one of those moments where I got the book before we'd set up a time to talk or even said we were going to and reading the book. It's like, yes, we need to talk. And so check out Barbara link in the show notes and listeners can find a reading group guide for Heartwood on that website, too. And go get the book. We'll link up some options for getting the book, too. So there. Hey, buddy, you tired? What? <laughs> <laughs> I <bored> I've, already <laughs>
3: I've been taking a started taking a new medication a couple of weeks ago that the one side effect is vivid dreams. Mm. Um,
0: I, I'll take it.
3: Yeah. Um, but also it feels oh. like uh, it feels just like I have another life now. You know, like a very active other life. Like most mornings now I wake up and I'm, I'm just have to like collect myself because I'm like, wow, geez, (laughs) it's
0: a lot. You're like, boy, I got to get, I got to get some sleep. Um, I think about dreams like that, like a place to live. Uh, and use our, our that extra time. So I feel like as far as a side effect to a medication would go, um, unless, yeah, you, it makes you tired or you're exhausted from the dreams and if they're nightmares sometimes.
3: Chelsea was just telling me about this uh, indigenous culture in America that used to have your dreams are the primary like rule of law, like the, the conscience of yeah. your culture. And mm-hmm. if you have a dream that... Uh, somebody's cat should be yours. (laughs) Everyone collectively decides like, okay, this is your cat now, you know, and you can't lie about it. I mean, the worst thing that you could do would be to make up a dream, but that dictates everything about what people should be doing, uh, Mm. which is just a fascinating, it sounds kind of chaotic, but like maybe if everybody aligned with that, maybe your dreams would start to not be so chaotic in a way if, if they were being put to that purpose. That's right.
0: Gosh, did we talk about this already? That's so wild. For some reason, I'm thinking I just learned about this or just read about it, about the dream and how we use that culture uses the dreams as a primary source of informing decisions about their life. That's essentially what you just said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's this dream author, Robert Moss, and this is what, this is a quote of Robert Moss's and I'll, we'll bring this back to like dead, the lineage. Of our dead and ways we can be in communication with them. But the the quote is long before Europeans arrived, the people of the longhouse or the Hadanasani taught their children that dreams are the single most. This is separate of like this is word for word almost what you said. And this is from this other book, I guess. They taught their children that dreams are the single most important source of both practical and spiritual guidance. The first business of the day in a Hadanasani village was dream sharing, as dreams were messages from the spirits and the deeper self. They might contain guidance for the community as well as the individual. The early Hadnasani believed that in dreams we, routine, we routinely travel beyond this body and the limits of time and space, can visit the future or the past, and may enter the realms of departed and of spiritual teachers on higher levels. The ancient teaching of the Hadnasani people is that dreams also reveal the wishes of the soul, calling us to move beyond our ego agendas and the web of other people's projections into a deeper, more spirited life in dreams we also discover where our vital soul energy may have gone missing through pain or trauma or heartbreak and how to get it back the early jesuit missionaries marveled that the haudenosaunee would make life or death decisions on the basis of dream reports i wonder if it's the same community that the book you're reading
3: is talking about yeah it might be um and so that's in the northeast i also know here in california the olone uh, tribes in this in this area when the spanish conquistadors were enslaving them basically in missions, there were reports that they could never get the indigenous people to believe that dreams were any less important than real life, even when it was um, you know, like torture basically. Um they mm. couldn't beat that idea out of them. Yeah. Which is right, just so fascinating yeah. that ooh, on yeah. the you know, I grew up in California, you did too, that on the land that we grew up on, just a couple centuries before, for thousands of years, that was just the understanding that dreams had the equal importance to waking life to such Mm -hmm. a degree that you couldn't like beat it out of somebody. It wasn't just a, you know, a whim or anything. It was like a a deeply held belief, maybe stronger Mm -hmm. than a belief, you know?
0: Well, let me, let me first, did you kind of answer the question that you, you, some of these dreams have been nightmares? Have they been that level or did you, were you bringing up this, this quote from the book you're reading to answer my question, which was, are some of your dreams like scary, stressful, nightmarish? My
3: dreams are just very deeply involved. It's just a completely different okay. life uh, existence, a uh, group of friends location. <laughs> you know, it's just a, yeah. it's just a very continuous oh, from I want through this. the whole night, seemingly
0: that I'm just in yeah. this other world. And then I wake up I'm like, wow, oh, all right. Okay. Back to this. Right. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, So what I want to ask to kind of bring it back to something that's been held by this episode already, which is our, and this quote I read from, from the book, the Robert Moss book on dreams, that quote of being able to, to return to the realms of our departed and the spiritual teachers. I'm wondering, Nick, if you ever have dreams where you can access like the, the dead of your ancestry or people in your life who have died and get time with them in your dreams is that very common for you yeah i've i've definitely
3: had people that are not even dead but just there's been some severance of the relationship and it's just too difficult to talk to them mm. in real life like i've had really satisfying healing moments of connection with them and it's not just it's not just them saying everything i would want to hear it's you know yeah. it's very real connection of oh this feels like how it would be if we could get past the emotions of the yeah. whatever betrayal or whatever um mm-hmm. and that's just the feeling in the morning at times i've had that several times where it just feels like okay that might be the only thing i get from this relationship yeah. ever again you know and that's enough like the, just that yeah. feeling and whether or not the other person feels it or it doesn't matter really
0: yeah you can't even you can't you can't check in with them and say, "Hey, like I know we're not talking right now, but did you dream about me last night?" Are we I good had a now? Great dream about you. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty nice. Uh, it's funny that your answer is that instead of focused on someone actually dead, because that's probably my more likely example of, of being with uh, something that's dead—not literally a person, but like the dead of a, the deadness of a relationship. In fact, I I wish, and I was just saying this to someone the other day. And I've felt it a lot over the years since my mom died. I wish that I dreamt about my mom. You know, I would Mm -hmm. say maybe in the 20 years, at least that I can remember, I could count on one hand how many times I had a dream with my mom and Mm -hmm. just feeling lately both, boy, I wish again, I wish that would happen and kind of calling it forth. And even sort of incidentally being encouraged by random people to try to at least ask her to visit me in my dreams, you know, practice inviting her to meet me there. And, um, also wanting to have what I feel like you may be getting because of the vividness of your dreams. I wonder if you're going to have more access to like your life being informed by that time that you're spending in your dreams. Like in a way you're using that time to, to even get more out of your waking moments too, somehow. Um, but maybe it's just exhausting. No, it's, it's fulfilling. It's,
3: Mm -hmm. it's a good thing. I, I I appreciate it. It's just, it's just Mm -hmm. wall to wall life experiences where normally you think of the eight hours (laughs) of sleep
0: being, you know, turning your brain off. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, you never know where we're going to go with these conversations, everybody. (laughs) Well, thanks, Nick. Grateful for you. Thanks, listeners. So glad you're here. Thanks for letting us be in your ear. Until next time, bye-bye. See you in your dreams.